Welcome, welcome, tennis nuts out there. Welcome to Living at the 45. I'm glad you made it today. I am happy to be talking with a new friend of mine, but we are having such a good time. His name is AJ Chabria, and he's played and covered coach tennis events all around the world. He's had an extensive career, 25 years as a head pro in some great clubs in California and Texas. He's a contributing editor at tennisplayer.net. Uh, he hosts a great podcast, which I subscribe to. I think it's great. It's called At The Net Podcast. And he talks to all kinds of great tennis players, just like and, and tennis icons like we do here at uh, Living at the 45. And he's worked with everyone from Vlander to Venus to McEnroe and just a heavily, heavily involved tennis guy. I don't know what your background as far as playing was much, but I do know you've, you've done a lot of events and you've done a lot of coaching and, and heavily involved in that. And uh, I'm going to have to uh, ask you about a couple of your hobbies, like stand-up, because that really interests me. And uh, AJ, Chambria, please uh, say hi to everyone who's living at the 45 here. Hello, and it's uh, uh, such a warm welcome, Jack. Thank you so much. I love living at the 45 as a TV show, but also as a uh, as a podcast and as a kind of as a way of life. I love hitting the ball still, and uh, I love hitting, uh, you know, kind of the, the intuitive, beautiful figure eight style of strokes that you espouse. I'm big on that, man. So uh, yeah, pleasure to be here. Thank you, Jack. Well, you've done your homework. If you know about the figure eight and the 45, you've done a little of your homework there, which is great. And I've done the same on you. And uh, yeah, I got lots of questions for you. So let's get it started. Let's roll. That first question Love I got to ask before I get diverted into a bunch of tennis gibberish, you, you know, we could just go on forever. So your hobbies. Okay. So I have a similar hobby. Music's a big hobby of mine and I'm a foodie and a wino maybe, but uh, stand up. Does that mean you like watching stand up or does it mean you actually have the huevos to get up and stand up and do comedy? I got to ask. Oh, I, I hadn't done stand up in 27 years. And I must admit, I didn't really love it like I loved sketch comedy and the improv classes that I took when I lived in uh, in San Francisco, Berkeley, uh, Marin County uh, back in the 90s. Back then, when I did stand up, it was you've got to have huevos to get up there. It's 18 other comics trying to get better and better and better. It's, you know, they're all drunk and depressed and I wasn't huge on the scene, even though I was an avid fan of some of the guys who were going on right after me or right before me or something. So I wasn't super into it. Um, after a pretty darn good career and a fun career as a director of tennis at a club out there. And then uh, here in Texas, I uh, was asked to MC a couple of bands um, at a almost like an open mic. And then after the open mic and after this thing, this uh, basically a tap room at a brewery got bigger and bitter, big, bigger. And the crowds went from 15, 20 people, which is, I, which is what I was used to, or maybe speaking at a conference, I'm used to a hundred or something. It has grown, tripled in the past few months. And one night it became, hey, after the open mic bands, can you MC please the two real bands, the two established touring musicians? 
And in between, while one band takes down and the other sets up, you think you can do five minutes monologue, you know, stand up something like, man, I haven't done any of this. And by the way, this was on a Friday night. They asked me to do this, uh, the, the stand up part, not the emceeing part. That was well planned. They, they gave me about eight hours notice. So I thought, you know, from the podcast, I have some bits that we've never used and we probably won't. So I have some stuff written because you can't just get up there and do impressions. I can do voices and accents or whatever, but is that really that funny? I mean, it's funny with my friends and with my right, wife. Right, right, right. Conversationally. Yeah. So I, I had something written and then I, I, want, I don't want to say I crammed or scrambled, but I wrote a few other things. I rehearsed. I rehearsed in the car on the way up and boom, I did it for, you know, uh, for eight minutes and it was really fun. And they have asked, I, I guess it was decent enough to where they've asked me back. So I've gone five, six times up in a row and I would consider it you know, a hobby now. Yeah. Just to, just to do it. And I don't get paid for it. I get paid in, you know, food and beer and whatever. And it's, it's just laid back and fun. That's classic. That is classic. That that really brings me back to college days. You know, totally. basically, yeah, I mean, you had funny guys in college, but you just don't think to go stand up. And it sounds like, you know, all the fun tennis beer drinking days is what primed you for your career. Maybe, maybe all that helped uh, more than I thought it hurt. Gee, it's funny when you were talking, it really reminded me of a, of a, of a Grateful Dead show I saw back, uh, I don't know, like 1979 or something, 80. And they brought on the uh, same thing in the beginning of the show, in the middle of the show. I think it was a New Year's Eve show. They brought on Franken and Davis. Do you remember Al Franken before he went into politics, Franken and Davis? Absolutely. Franken, this is probably his SNL days, 70s. Yes, was correct. It, it was his SNL. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. It was classic. And I yeah, just, what a duo. Yeah, they were really funny. And uh, yeah, that's that's great. So it started there. So what's more nerve wracking, uh, playing uh, college tennis or um, or stand up comic? The, um, the the level of tennis that I played, which was one of the smaller Division One colleges, uh, you know, we'd maybe have 30, 40 people watching on a good day. So gotcha. I, I didn't see that as nerve wracking. I saw stand-up in grad school in my early mid-20s. I saw that as nerve-wracking. I see this as college tennis, like just fun and easy. And it's what it's natural because I'm up there kind of emceeing anyway. And to, to get an extra eight minutes and make people laugh maybe and to express some of my opinions and maybe a turn of phrase or a voice or a, a hot take or a, a controversial opinion that I may not say with friends um, because, you know, maybe there's somebody who would think, oh, that guy's offensive. Well, you know what? It's bloody comedy. I'm going to do it. We're going to laugh. And it's under the guise of, hey, I'm kind of playing a character up there. It's not actually me. So for that reason, I talked myself out of the nerves. But let's be honest, any match, even if it's only a few people watching, um, it's, it's nerve wracking. You got to use the nerves, right? You got to use yeah. that pressure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, you're right, I guess. And I was the same, uh, you know, I played for a couple of, of well, Chapel Hill was a big, bigger school, but, you know, unless you're yeah, paying, UNC, playing, yeah. if you, unless you're playing for money, uh, you know, keep your scholarship, 
it does take that takes a huge level of pressure off and you're right tennis college tennis was about the most fun i've ever had in my life it was really it was an it incredibly was, good time it was a blast and you're not smart at the time i i certainly wasn't smart enough to understand that oh i might lose the scholarship if i don't play well I, that wasn't it, it wasn't in my brain it was more just we're, we're out here we're having fun we're competing I get to play number one or two doubles, number one singles for this college and, you know, wear the colors and we get a little bit of free gear and I'm just out there flowing. And the moment the match is done, I'm going to have fun and then I'll go study. And, you know, it's just, it, it, Oh, I agree. The moment. And I should, yeah. And I should tell you, I was 17 when I was a freshman uh, in college, I graduated a little bit early from high school. So I, I was even dumber and less mature and not, and, and I think that actually helped. I would say probably freshman and uh, freshman year, I was weirdly successful at number one. I don't know. I think it's just because you're flowing and you don't know. And what if we could put that in a bottle and play tennis like that at 50, 60, whatever, 70? Well, that's true. You know, young and dumb, I never saw it as a negative term. Uh, you know, they don't use it anymore today because you probably get sued or arrested or something. But uh, or, young or and dumb. Right. Or cancel, which, you know, I really don't care about. It's impossible. I'm closer to dead than canceled. So I don't give a shit, you know, but it's true. Uh, yeah. I think young and dumb, that's why guys like Alcarez come out or Borg or Chrissy Everett, you know, they're, they're too young and dumb to even realize that there's expectations of them. It's like, Hey, I'm just wailing. I'm, I'm just King of the, I'm, king of the hill, you know, and king of the world, as they say. And, and you just feel that kind of um, exuberance and energy and positivity that only a, a young and dumb person could see. Because as you get older and get beaten up here and there, then you start to be more careful. Then you start to worry about this or worry about your reputation or, you know what I mean? Uh, life starts to, to, to hammer on you a bit. And I think, you know, you do see these phenoms, Boris Becker, you see these phenoms when they're young and then, you know, after they've hit their stride, right. When they're young, then all of a sudden reality sets in and then they, you know, they drop to two or three and they're, you know, and people can deal with them, but it's really hard to deal with unabashed um, youth, you know, and, and the ignorance that it brings with it. You know what I mean? Love it. Love it. Absolutely right. Yeah. But uh, so tell me more. It seems to me, I, I mean, from what I've studied, you really have spent your life promoting the game, I would say, as much as anything else. Like you say, you know, if they look you up on the ATP tour, just like me, they ain't going to find us. And uh, no, no, I didn't. I, make it I was level, yeah. I was fortunate. I coached a few good players, so that didn't hurt. And uh, it, it didn't hurt that I was in Southern Cal, you know, where there's you know, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a good tennis player. And um but I'm the same way now. I really want to give back to the game. And that's what it, that's the impression I get, uh, you know, sort of getting involved in your world the last couple of months here uh, is that promoting the game and, and bringing more people into the game and 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 just you, I guess your expression of how much you love the game. I, I don't know how else to put it, really. Yeah, I've never not loved the game. I've had an injury. I've taken some time off it. But uh, yeah, that the that I uh, like how you said it. The expression of how much we we love this sport, and I, mean, I would say just um, sports in general. So you know, one question I might ask you 
if I can turn it around on you is, and I'm happy to answer this as well, is what is it about tennis that we love so much and that we just got to share? Huh. I think for me, it would have to be, in singles, it would have to be the feeling that you have overcome your own personal limitations, your own emotions, and you won a match where you were down 5-2 in the third. I mean, those are the ones I remember. I still remember high school matches that I was down 5-2 in the third. And, you know, I remember one, uh, I was playing number one on the high school team. And it's really weird. I go back to high school. I haven't thought about this match in 40 years, but uh, it started snowing. And it was in Connecticut. And it was in April. It was like April 1st or 2nd. And it was snowing and it was down 5-2 in the third. And I saved a couple of match points and it starts snowing. And as a dumb, young and dumb kid, I say, oh, this is a sign from God. I'm going to win this match. And sure as shit, I came back. I uh, I won 7-5 in the third. And it's happened a few times in my life. You know, I've had a decent win here and there. And and it was always such a good feeling like, you know what, I overcame my own per personal limitations, my own nerves, where I thought, you know, you know, you think, hey, you know, I could double fault at any second, or I just completely go off the rails. And the fact that you toughed it out. And then and then when it comes to the other part of the game, doubles, um, I love my doubles partners. I mean, I absolutely love them like I would love a brother. Um a brother that I like, you know, <laughs> you know? <laughs> There's plenty, a lot of people are out there going, oh, I have a brother. He sucks. You know, I hate that guy. But, but I, you know what I mean when I say like a brother and where you really pull for each other and that camaraderie, which you don't get in tennis very much. And I think the doubles really pulled me through a lot of the juniors because uh, it's very lonely. You know, it's, it's weird sport for a kid, you know, everyone else is playing baseball, basketball, football, and they're all having fun. And they're, you know, and they're strapping each other with the towel in the bathroom, you know, in the, in the locker room and tennis player, you're all alone. Basically you drive with your mom or dad, or they stick you on a train and, and, you know, it's different. So it almost like you have to grow up fast. Doubles kept it fun for me. So I don't know if that explains it very well to you, but that's kind of how I feel about the sport, at least my own personal journey. How about you? I, I feel that yeah, I've had that journey too. And oh, sorry, we've got a little dog barking there. Sorry, but um, that's, that's uh, live. Me, it's, it's great. All, it's all of, yeah, it's all of those things. It's the camaraderie, even though there's very little of it at a high level of junior tennis in college, the van rides are unforgettable. Honestly, yep. even fitness, even conditioning was fun because you're doing it with your six or seven or eight bros, you know, your teammates. So that's another thing I love about tennis. But really, the team sports have that, too. What what I wanted to say is you, there's no position in tennis. You're not a lineman or a kicker or a running back or a this or a that. You are playing defense, offense, sometimes in the same three seconds. I love that. I love the creativity. I love the push and pull between I got to be disciplined and use this kind of shot selection, or I got to be more creative against this player, or I got to problem solve and I got to do it. Of course, in college, we can get coaching, but in the other 90% of tennis, and I'm talking about the lowest level of pro tennis that I played or the pretty good level of junior tennis that I played, there's no coaching. In fact, it's actively outlawed. And you better problem solve and problem solve really well 
And sometimes it's, it's, I have to do something that's not my plan A or my plan B, it's my plan C. And maybe I got to stop thinking about plans A's, B's, and C's. And maybe I got to be fluid and smooth and be able to change things, which is one of the, I know we're not really talking about technique right now, but it's one of the other things I love about it. The creativity on the tactical, emotional side of tennis is not that different from the creativity on the technical side of tennis. And that's another thing I absolutely love about this game. And I'll never stop. Like I, 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 I'll be limping one day at 70, 80 years old, but I'm still going to hit the tennis ball with, uh, you know, string, you know, in other words, not, not the pickleball, not the pedal. Right. Like I'm addicted mm-hmm. still to the, to how these things move and snap back and spin the ball. Like that feeling would be the third prong of my answer. Yeah. And I think, I think that's a good point. You know, people ask why I don't get into pickleball. And by the way, that's seventies, eighties crack, you know, it's a little close to home here, but uh, just say eighties and nineties from now on, would you? Um, (laughs) But yeah, yeah. You don't ever get the feeling in pickleball that you get in tennis. I mean, when you hit a nice ball in tennis and that sound, you know, just, it almost makes your ears ring. Sometimes it does. And, and, you know, you just unravel, you know, from your core out to your racket head into the ball. There's nothing that feels like that. I played some pickleball. It was fun. It was easy. Um, yeah, I did fine. I, I, I enjoy pickleball. I, yeah, it's I, fun. It's easy. Yeah. yeah, but but tennis, there's a pureness to tennis that is just irreplaceable. And uh, you really, and I guess that's why we all strive to play like Federer, who, whoever our hero is, because it's a natural way of feeling. It's like, a, like I used to tell my my kids when they go play tournaments, I go, hey, man, just go out there and, you know, f- fly out there, you know, fly like a bird, you know, f- swim like a fish, be, you know, use your core and do your figure eight and really enjoy the process because um, there's nothing like, feeling like you're sort of at one with nature and 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 that's why you know i wish i had played a little better when i was younger because i was a grinder and uh, i won ugly a lot and i didn't like it and um it wasn't nearly as satisfying i i I really profess that all my players now before they even play a tournament become a baller because to go through life like a baller is a whole lot different world it's a whole different life than going through like a grinder. And you know exactly what I'm talking about because most of us are grinders. I do. I, <laughs> it's true. Most people are grinders. Um, uh, and some of us think we're ballers and we you know, we lose, but I, I, I'd rather lose. You use two words that I cannot hide my joy, uh, my uh, uh, love for. You use the word unraveling. You use the word fly. Uh, use your core, use your strokes that's missing from some of the other things we do in life. And if we can find that feeling in other things, whether it's uh, video editing or um, a promotional post or a podcast, or whether it's on the court unraveling and flying, that's what I'm into. And I, uh, I want that every day. You know, I want that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's funny how we changed, though. I mean, I was living in California up until a year ago, a year and year and a half now. And I would play tennis on a bad week. I'd play 20 hours because whenever I give a lesson, I play. I don't care if it's a two sure, point. You're uh, hitting. You know, if, it's, if it's a two O U T R 
or a 12 UTR. It didn't matter because, you know, just hitting the ball is such a delight. And I just was never much of a ball feeder unless I'm working on a specific shot or if I happen to be a little hurt one day, which I tried to keep down to a minimum. Um, It was always live ball. And I think the students like that better anyway. I've never been one of those guys to toss the ball with my hand and and watch everyone run around while I toss the ball. I'm like, well, shit, they could just get a five-year-old to drop the ball. I don't need me. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, I think, like I said, it's just so few people know what it's like to be a baller. And that's why, you know, guys like Curios, you might love them or hate them, but you got to admit, guy's fun to watch such a baller he can grind but he's such a baller he yeah the dictionary definition of the baller i agree i agree he's like an astasi or like uh alcarez boy he, he just he tees yeah. off but uh, with that said i still like the guy who's the most disciplined and not the guy who just plays out some of these guys some of these ballers so to speak they play out the side themselves in my opinion they're like well shit it'll either hit the line or it'll go out but and i'm like eh i'll take novak all 10 you know 7 days a week because the guy's disciplined every ball's within 3 feet of the baseline nothing just oh. you know meat meat and potatoes you know nothing he doesn't hit the biggest forehand. He doesn't hit the biggest serve, but his percentage for the first serve is huge. He lines up everything so beautifully. And, and I just, he's my pick for the year. I, I think he'll get 24 or 25 slams at least. I think so too. Um, I remember, you know, I, I've got a little bias uh, in favor of a one-handed backhand. So of course I'm going to like Stan, Dominic, and of course Federer, you know, sure. high bar there. Um, so there was a time, uh, you mentioned Djokovic and how disciplined and he's, you know, at times a baller, at times a grinder, he finds his movement is so good. And his eyes are so good that he gets himself to where he hits an 85, 87% of his, uh, capabilities. And he wins with that. I remember disliking for a while. I'm talking about Oh five through probably Oh eight, maybe. 09. Who didn't every, disliking. everyone did. Yeah. I mean, he ruined the party, right? I you did, had your I, I, your favorite was Nadal or Federer, right? And you picked one, and then this guy comes in and he ruins the party. Well, as a as a one handed fan and a, a fan of attacking tennis, I didn't like Rafa. Uh, you know, I, I like his look. I like the the muscles and the movement, all that, and the intensity. I appreciated the parts that one should appreciate, but I thought, oh, his backhand is kind of ugly. And then you study it with high speed film and you study it and you're like, holy cow, he gets in position. And I read a stat, this is several years ago, that he's hitting his lefty two handed back end. We know he's really righty and all that, but right. he's hitting it at the 45. He's hitting it not just at the 45, he's hitting it at a in a strike zone. Whether Federer is knifing a slice or so and so is ripping a top spin up high to his backhand. He is doing the movement, getting himself disciplined and in position to hit the backhand where he needs to hit it something like eight out of 10 times, which is insane. And coming from uh, a one hand here, I've got to do a few calculations like, do I move? Do I move back and take it here? Do I slice it up here? Oh, shoot, that is low. Do I use this grip? Maybe not. Maybe I slice it. You know, there's all these calculations. Why? Because... 
I'm not in position like these freaks are. These guys no. are another level. Of course, of course. You know, it's funny. You know, I was the same with Rafa. He really just pissed yeah. me off because I loved Roger so much. <laughs> because Roger is like, it's not so much how many trophy, you know, how many slams you win and this and that, and how much money you make. For me, it was the pureness, the way he hit so effortlessly. I mean, you can model, you know what I mean? He really epitomized the figure eight and the hips and the 45, and his arm did ripple out beautifully into the stroke. And it was all so balanced, right? He was on, on balance. He looked really like a, a ballet dancer. And, and then Nadal comes out with his big body. You know, people were skeptical about hormones and that, and of course, steroids. And, wow. and you know, who's to say anyway? I don't know. I, I certainly wouldn't. I wouldn't purport that that's what, what it was. I just, the guy was a friggin' beast, but uh, you know, when I watched him more closely, like you're saying, I found the same thing. I said, well, wait a minute. When you look at him through different eyes, he looks identical to Djokovic or, or Federer. The, the difference is, I think they all line up the same. They all line up that perfect, you know, bisection of the vertical and horizontal. They all line up at the 45 and but Nadal is so obsessive because of his overall personality. He won't go past the 45. So he is in the vertical, right? He's in the 45, but his figure eight is much more in the vertical where Murray and Federer are more in, especially Murray, he's more in the horizontal. Federer is perfect. He literally, for every cubic inch, he moves uh, to the in the lateral horizontal. He moves a cubic inch up in the vertical. He's perfect, which is why I liked him the best. Um, and Djokovic is is more like Federer that way. But yeah, Murray was very much in the laterals and he made him very beautiful. And Nadal wasn't quite as beautiful because he was all in the vertical, but obsessive about not crossing the 45, right? He would, he would come off the backhand and almost bump it. And he would, you know, come off the forehand like this and, and do the same. And he had so much, you know, rotation, but they all use the same principles differently. That's what I felt. Maybe I'm full of crap, but that's how I felt. <laughs> you've got uh, you've got a great eye and good taste, my friend. Yeah, well, thank you. That's coming from you. That means something. I appreciate that. Uh, you know, let me ask you some other questions. So we've gone into the greatness anyway. of the great, and it's really fun to talk about greatness. And it's a little harder. Nobody seems to want to talk about the negative side. And, and so for starters, what I notice uh, in, let's say the women's game right now, let's start there. Um, my only issue right now in the men's game, as I said, is, is the fact that some of these guys seem to play outside themselves. That's why I shrug my shoulders and go Novak, this tournament, Djokovic, this tournament. I mean, he's got it because I just think he's more disciplined and, and doesn't try to do too much, never tries to do too much, just does what's necessary. Um, the women's side, what bugs me is when Serena left the game, you once again see the incredible void she left when it comes to the serve. Void. So I'm going to let you go on that because people think I'm an old curmudgeon anyway when it comes to women's serves. So let you, I'll let you be the dinosaur and talk about women's serves for a minute. Uh, I'm also an old curmudgeon. And um, for me, <laughs> You know, I, I, I probably coach more uh, elite guys than women, although I, I uh, do work with two uh, aspiring pro women on the ITF future circuit right now. It is crazy to me how many coaches value, of course, great stuff like movement, fitness, 
flexibility, recovery, of course. Um, but a lot of them, they don't really teach the serve very well. And it seems like a lot of women get away with the very typical, okay, under pressure, we'll just slice. And they never really learn a big serve or a kick serve or a dependable second that either kicks up or crowds the body. I know me, I have a good forehand, but not when a guy is good enough to give me this, you know, I have a great backhand, but maybe not when it's, yeah, you know, I, I like reaching and stretching and moving, uh, but I don't like a backhand up here, you know, and you don't see as much of that with the women. In fact, even when I hit with some of these gals, I'm like, wow, I, I can, I can return serve and, and break these girls uh, because their serves are, are really not that great. I think a lot of it has to do with attitude and mindset. I think some of it is technical. I think a lot of them look the same. So you, you can, and I'm a little, a little conspiracy uh, nut here. I feel like the coaches either let them get away with it or they all teach the same thing and not as well as maybe they have a bias and they're like, dude, I don't care if you're 5'9 or 6'4, we're going to work on, there's no reason not to have an amazing serve. And then guys, you know, maybe guys are a little better at throwing a, a football or a baseball and they develop a great serve. But I see it. And, you know, two of the women that I work with, one of them holds the racket like it's a foreign object. And the other holds it like she's been holding it. Sure. Uh, like it's a crayon or a paintbrush that she's sure. had in her hand since age two and a half. That's what I feel is missing in, uh, in a lot of the tennis, not, not just women's tennis but in general. So, you know, really great question. Everything I was just now curmudgeonly about on the serve in women's tennis, it, it weirdly applies to slice backhands, drop volleys, reaching volleys and crowded volleys. Um, they've got a little more work to do and wait till, um, you know, you mentioned the void left in general, I think is how I took it, but the void specifically in the serve Serena, was number three, number 11, number one, winning slams, even when she wasn't really that fit. Why? Because their serves suck and her return's amazing and her yep. serve is dominant and the shot after it is great. So if Serena's in a, an 18, 20 ball rally, she'll lose it because of maybe the other person's fitness or she'll win it because of her resolve and her tactical ability and her power. But if she's in a three, four, five ball rally, she's got the edge because their serve sucked and she started the point well with her amazing returning. And her serve is probably one of the, I would say, top three of all time, probably maybe the number one of all time. Yeah. Oh, I think for sure. Number one of all time. Well, you, a lot to chew there. First thing you said was, the you know, the guys throw the balls better. And, and more often when they're young and, and it always brings me back to that YouTube video. I saw Rafa, you know, and says, Oh, learn how watch how Rafa improved his serve. And, you know, and, and all the coach did was have him throw the ball further. And as far as he could throw it on the tennis court, I'm like, okay, well, that's, if you're a great athlete, that's one way to teach it is just let the guy find it himself through the ball throw. And I thought that was great. Um, no one noticed what I've been noticing and going crazy about the last five, six, seven years 
no one noticed he changed his serve. When I when he first came out, he didn't move that front foot. The right foot, he didn't move it. Now he always moves it about this much. Like when you step to throw a ball, right? When you when you throw a ball, you coil up, you take that step if you're a righty with the left foot, and you really, you know, your hips unwind and you release the ball at the 45. Well, Nadal had to just figure it out on his own, but that's the big thing. I can't believe one commentator hasn't picked it up, but his serve. He never, and and you, you could say, well, he only steps this much, but this much can be the difference in everything. And that step gives him more of a ball throw. You see, as he tosses, he takes a little step with that left foot. Watch next time and you'll see. Oh, and uh, then, um, you know, Pete, Pete had a version of it with the, with the, the, the heel Roger, the, uh, yep. probably only this much, but I, I felt we've all done it. I remember I took my U S pro tennis association, certification and the tester this is in northern california the tester at the time um or the assistant was like hey you know i know you're warming up serves you'll have to do this this and this kick slice whatever he's like you're a good player i'm not worried about you but you are foot faulting and i was like dude i'm foot faulting because it doesn't matter right now and i'm just warming things up and you take that tiny little step and then of course there's a USDA official in a real match and you won't do it. But Federer was one of the first to do the actual step. And yep. for me, yep. Sampras was the, uh, not the first to do it, but the signature greatest second serve, greatest first serve, probably of my lifetime. But he yep. did a version of it. So I'm with you on that stuff. And you're correct. The commentators aren't going to go into that. Maybe it's, they don't know. Maybe they it's don't the know. Producers they don't like, know. Don't, no, don't they get just too don't technical. Know. I don't know. Don't no, know. no, no. They don't know. They don't know. Um, you know, I I can see tennis is trying. They're trying. You know, the Netflix series was really interesting. Uh, yeah. uh, by the way, we'll talk about it on the Real Spin next week, you and I, because I oh, didn't. Cool. Cool. I have not gotten a chance. I tried to watch it. I just couldn't. I, I just crazy busy. But I will watch it over the weekend when I have a little time off uh, in between. And plus, I've been trying to digest some of these Australian Open matches as well. But um, they're trying tennis, you know, they're getting different angles, you know, now you see the angle through the tunnel as they're about to serve. But I don't think they're trying very hard because I don't, Eagleton in our last real spin, he said something interesting. He says they don't have the lingo. I mean, you have someone like Chrissy Everett, who's a wonderful person and a great player. I mean, how can she possibly talk about a Nick Kyrgios's game? How is that even, or a Zarev or a Tsitsipas? It's not possible. She didn't have that kind of game. She doesn't understand it. So I don't think they know enough to see little things like the foot moving and all that. These are just players and, and inadvertently they become coaches. You know, it doesn't mean that they're born to coach it means that they're great players and some great players wanted them around them in the box. That's how I feel about it. And then as far as the volley, you said something about the volley as well. You're right. Um, Serena never was much in that area. I mean, I never saw her attempt really anything but a swinging volley. And if she did, they were usually pretty ugly volleys. So she she was not the queen it of was, volleys. Uh, it was, you know, it was kind of mechanical. She got it done it, because her yeah. approach was good. Yeah, it's. I think there's only one decent volleyer in the women's game, and that was Hennen. That's my opinion. Oh, she's exceptional. Yes. Uh, just CNN, yeah, amazing. It was a shame her career was cut short by personal issues because she was by far my Federer. She was, 
I thought she could have done what Federer did um, for the women's game. But um, yeah, I think she finished at 26 or so. Um, but yeah, so the volleys are another area in the women's game. So tell me, how would you, um, I mean, what would you tell the women out there? What do you tell the women that you coach? Uh, how do you try and change it? Cause to me, it's all the same. I toss bend your knees equally, which is silly. I mean, that's silly. Bend your knees, just a simple bend, like bending means something. I mean, there's a thousand ways to bend your knees. So saying bend your knees bend doesn't like mean this. much. And yeah. then, and then, and then push up into the serve i mean more more nebulous terms you couldn't find i mean no talk of a coil you know no talk of a coil no talk of you know it's really more like when you bend your knees on a server any stroke really it's more like vines vines that twist become shorter but one vine is always mm -hmm. going to be a little longer than the other right and as you untwist them they'll change places but you don't just bend your knees that's my issue with it i'd like to hear your side of the story I'm with you. Uh, an even bend isn't going to push forward much. Um, uh, a lack of loading. I mean, you see perfectly good. I'm talking about number 10 in the country in 16s, and they don't coil. They just bring the racket up. And there's nothing wrong with this as long as you get the, the little bit of coiling going with the whole body. Not, I'm illustrating the elbow because this camera is just chest up. I understand. But, uh, so incomplete. And Maybe if you're a coach, you get, I, I haven't done a lot of heavy technical changes because as I started coaching uh, these two pro players, they were already very good players. One had played pro, one had played division one college tennis. Their strokes are their strokes, but the little changes that we make, one of them, I don't have to change a lot. The other, wow, such a limited five foot nine, perfect uh, uh, physique for the tennis, but when the serve is that inefficient to add a little bit of video analysis that shows, okay, your hip is here and your elbow is here. What if we had some coil? And then what happens is I don't really have to say it, but one leg is bending a little better and more than the other. And now we've got tension and now we've got release. And then we start talking about, okay, let's have this spin and not just no spin or just you know, side spin, let's add a little bit of that or, you know, and then we use this o'clock to that o'clock and, you know, you're going to get me started on some of the lingo that is from the seventies, which you, I think covered pretty well when you were talking about um, commentators, our age and older, and a lot of it is lacking. And, you know, I, I, I appreciate that you said they just don't know. I think that's lazy because uh, there's so much good, there's so much bad information out there but there's so much good information. And, you know, th some of these people, you mentioned Chris Everett, she is in touch with and pals with people who played in the late nineties, early two thousands. And now I don't know how tight they are with how she is with her coaches, but her brother, John Everett runs that Academy down in Florida. That's right. She should, these people should know their stuff. And I have to think that maybe they do, or maybe their producers are telling them, you know, Yo, dumb it down. Let's make it glamorous. Let's make it the bathroom camera angles. And let's talk about what she's wearing. And, you know, that's fine. But for me, I want the sound of the ball. I want the sound of the crowd. And maybe an intelligent commentator, you know, quick shout out to ESPN Plus, best hundred bucks I've spent. Uh, not a lot of commentary, decent sound of the court, 
no, uh, and the ball and the and the court ball and crowd, and not a lot of fluff. Just I'm watching tennis, and when I'm done, I'm done, and I can have my own thoughts. So that's my piece on modern technique and not covered. Yeah, yeah, you know, um, what's his name? Roscoe said the other day that, uh, or, or maybe it was yeah. Johan. I can't remember. One of them said that. I happen to like James Blake personally. Uh, I was teaching at a club where he's a member in San Diego and uh, good guy, bright guy, really bright guy, a nice, nice fella. And, uh, but yeah, and, and I think he's one of the better commentators, but, but Johan or, or Roscoe, one of them was right when they said, don't stop talking over the point. I mean, it's about that you want people to get into the point. Get into the point. Just don't keep talking and talking about something that happened in 1992. You know, let us watch the point and then, you know, give us your comments. You know, why, why did so-and-so hit in the bottom of the net? Can you give us a reason? After he just hit three screaming winners, now he hits the bottom of the net. Not a peep, not a word. And I, and I yeah, think that yeah. that's where we'd like to get a little insight. I mean, everyone knows that the backhand yeah, down the line winner was a great backhand down the line winner. You don't have to say that was a great backhand. We just saw it. You know, don't tell me what I know. Yeah. Uh, Roscoe was big on don't tell me what I saw. Tell me what I didn't see. That's um, right. And Johan, Johan was big on uh, uh, he was really adamant about don't talk during the point, but uh, his criticism of Blake was that he went to Harvard and he's so intelligent and he'll talk <laughs> about AI, you know, and, and, uh, and analytics, analytics and all that. And he's like, you know, that's going over my head, you know, like Johan was like, I'm a dumb guy from South Africa. You know, it's good. Uh, I thought that was a, a funny moment. And it was, I, funny. <laughs> I, you know, as much as I'm a dork and I do geek out over some of the analytical or, um, maybe not AI, but some of those things that a Blake might say, Johan is correct. Uh, you know, you, you sit next to somebody who's not as geeky and crazy into tennis like you are or I am, uh, you're going to lose people. And it's, you know, like I, I, I think you and I talked a little bit about watching Breakpoint. And it's quite a bit different when you watch it with your wife, who may or may not be as experienced a tennis person as you. And that's how I feel. That, that's, some of the push and pull I see while watching tennis, like wh who are they catering to? There's like 400 of us in the world and there's 4 billion of them in the world who they'd like to get into tennis. So maybe that's why uh, tennis commentary is kind of dissatisfactory for us. Yeah, I guess, I guess I'm not sure who they're going for. Uh, back in the seventies when tennis was in its heyday, when you were probably not even born yet uh no it, i was uh i was a kid lining up my racket for a public court i was in okay the bedroom, baby that's when i that's when i well, fell in love with this thing we had a couple of guys i always thought they were kind of dorky but in retrospect i'm like you know what they helped grow the game uh it was obvious they weren't players at the time i mean bud collins he wore that goofy looking clothes and those weird pants and but and I was a kid, so I was trying to be hip. So to me, he was a dork. But when I look back, I think, you know, he brought a lot of history to the game. He 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 informed people and and brought them into the world of tennis. And then the other was Vic Braden, which I didn't agree with almost any of his stuff, especially as I got older, very linear, uh, mechanical type teaching. But so what? I mean, he was dealing with Chrissy Everett and Stan Smith, who played a mechanical 
game. So maybe he was right on the money anyway at the time, but at least they tried. It seems like today there's no color in our color commentary. You know what I mean? It's very dry. It's very bland. And there's really nothing that you go, gee, I can't wait for so-and-so to speak. He's going to help me with my forehand here. Great point. Uh, color. And if I can contrast that with math and science, most tennis coaches back then uh, taught what they were taught. And it was very linear. It was the same as the 60s in the 70s, pretty much the same in the 80s as it was in the 70s, or at least early 80s. Bud Collins with the color. I'm not just talking about the pants, but uh, but the nicknames. And that brought me in, even though we're trying to be cool and, you know, the guys are, sure. are geek. Vic Braden um, brought a lot of math and science, maybe not color. He was funny and he was goofy and he yeah. would say things like, ah, you're going to, yeah, yeah, you're, you're going to be famous by Friday and uh, yeah. we're going to make your backhand uh, a weapon, you know, whatever, yeah. uh, whatever linear stuff. There are so many of us who, who see him. Yeah. As linear. And I don't use those strokes anymore and whatever, but I was taught like that. And Roscoe, you mentioned when Roscoe was on our show, he told us a great story of weight plates, weight sensors, and it was, okay, Roscoe, you're not six foot five. You are six feet tall, maybe 5'11 point whatever. You are absolutely crushing balls with a small-headed racket, uh, that PDP, which must have been like a, at, at most, 68 or 70-inch head. Uh, how are you hitting so hard? So they put weights on him, and Roscoe maybe weighed 175 pounds at the time, when he's serving, he weighed over 300 pounds with the force that he's putting on this scale and this scale. And to your point about different knee bends, one was more than the other. And, you know, we, we know what's what, but I'll let Roscoe tell you that. But what an interesting thing to see what Vic Braden brought to the science of, uh, of let's see how fast twitch works. Let's see how reflexes work. Let's see how the weight transfer or the transfer of power or the, I don't think he used the word kinetic chain that became much more popular in the nineties, but yep. in the early eighties, he did these things in Cota de Casa and he had Roscoe over. And if, if, if you were a friend of his, you were also a science subject. And my hat is, uh, is off to that. I think that's, that's fantastic. Even though we're trying to be cool and those guys are dorks, uh, mad respect for both. Yeah, and I, it brings me back to John Eagleton's point about the new lingo. We need to aspire to a new lingo. Uh, and, you know, yes. and we've tried buzzwords for years, whether it's, I hate to say this, could you use the word once, loading? That's to me a buzzword. Like racket head speed is a buzzword. Yeah. They don't, I mean, literally, literally, what does loading mean? Well, it's really hard to describe. So if you can't completely describe it, in my opinion, don't use it Why because use it? the figure eight yeah. motion, I can show you right now. I could stand up and show you a little figure eight in my hips. The 45, it's right there. <laughs> you know, it's like there's no nebulous 45. It's there. And, and I think that is an issue. I think we've been basing this on, on linear thought, linear mathematics, when you have to go, and that's what I did 25, 30 years ago. I went into this program the steiner college up in san francisco, san francisco area um sacramento actually and it, it, yeah. it taught all about nonlinear motion it taught oh how can you predict and it literally we did these classes where you had a 40 mile an hour wind and an eight foot flag 
how how would the flag exactly react at this point of the flag and at this point of the flag and you saw mathematically oh my god and it all lines up to the 45 and and and, and i was just blown away i mean and there was nobody under 90 in this class i was in everyone was a blue hair with glasses most of them were german and uh and i was the only you know young guy in there uh my friend and i and and i was blown away i'm like agassi oh my god oh my god and, and that's the problem is we, even the kinetic chain. Now, this bone's connected to this. It's still linear thought. When you drop a pebble in water, I'd like to hear someone in a linear fashion explain what's going on. You can't do it. Or take a picture of a big moving flag. Does that picture mean anything? Of course it doesn't. You have to understand the scope. And that scope has to be, I think, in a lingo and, and um, a genre that is a nonlinear and progressive, meaning it's it's in motion. You can't talk about something. You can't take a picture and say, well, look where his racket is. It doesn't matter because you need to encompass the whole thing. It's an analog system, not a digital system, in my opinion. So even the kinetic chain was kind of a buzzword, even though I think there was some validity to it, of course. And of so that's course, sort of where of I've always come from, you know. All those uh, incomplete steps lead to more complete strokes. And it's, you know, it, sometimes it can paralyze somebody to, to put too many eggs in the basket of that, whether it's what Vic was talking about or linear strokes or kinetic chain. But all that led to some of the things that we get to analyze and use. And hopefully, uh, as coaches, we can help people feel those things. And that's when you've done your job. I'll give you a quick example. I had a coach who, worked for me years back and you know most of them were amazing and receptive and wonderful and uh he would use the word load early and this was a fairly athletic 14 year old kid he's teaching and he's like load early and the parents love it because oh it's even better than prepare early but what did it do this poor kid can't run because she loaded early and you know five minutes ago this kid was a good mover and now all of a sudden she's a horrible mover because she's loading early. And I had to say, hey, um, whatever you said may have worked with another student, but it's clearly not gonna uh, help a lot of people. Um, so let's, let's find different ways to say that. Uh, and me, I'm, as he was saying it on another court, I'm like, God, I don't like loading early. I'm like maybe turning and preparing slightly on the early side, but I wanna load right when it's time. And then I wanna hit the ball like you said, with figure, I, I want to hit the ball with timing and beauty and strength and flow. I don't want to be all loaded early and then I move like crap and then I hit linear. And I'm like, God, this girl was good. What happened? You know, we're gonna we're gonna do something about it. Yeah, it's funny. It's like when I was a kid and they hit through the ball. I mean, when I first started playing, oh. I was I was think I was better naturally before I started taking lessons because a lot of pros were saying, no, you want to pretend there's five balls in front of that ball and you want to hit through. Well, that just turned you into a pusher. And that's what I became. I became a pusher. And at first I really loved yeah. walloping. Yeah. I loved to wallop the ball and I didn't know what I was doing. And then all of a sudden I'm hitting through the ball and trying to hit five balls and like a hot dog all the way through it. And all of a sudden, whatever natural athleticism I had was crushed by that tip. That's why I don't really like tips at all. I, I think you either learn to understand the game. I don't like that understand word. The, yeah. yeah, understand the game or don't understand it. But tips generally don't help. They're very fleeting. And, and I'm doing it because you told me to do it, not because it makes sense to me. 
But, you know, it's funny. I, I was talking earlier about, I, I got to say, I forgot this story. You love this one. So I'm coaching Foreman. Oh, uh, I'm coaching Foreman. He's one in the country in the 12s. This is kind of 2003 or something. And um, we're at Lacoste uh, Four Seasons. And, uh, and that's where I was coaching most of the time in California when I lived there. Uh, and Roy Emmo, Emerson's on the next court, right? And I'm, I'm like, shit, man, that's cool, you know, because I had met him once before through labor and this and that. And I thought it was really cool. And and I'm giving Stephen a lesson and he screams because it's cocky kid, like cocky kid. And uh He's screaming across the court. Hey, Jack, this coach is doing it all, is saying it all wrong. Because Emerson, Emerson was saying, you want to do move your arm first, your shoulder second, and your hips third. Okay? And that's obviously not what I coach. Uh, literally, and Steve goes, and he screams it across the court at me. And they're, they're on the next court. And I was mortified. He goes, Jack, he's coaching yeah. it all wrong. Just like that. And I was absolutely mortified. And I brought him in and I go, Steven, quiet. I said, that guy's a living legend. I said, are you out of your mind? 12 grand slams. Yeah. Yeah. I said, are you out of your mind? He says, well, I don't care. He says, you hear what he's saying? I said, well, just because he was a great player doesn't mean he, he said, maybe that's what he feels. I said, but let's keep it down. But, but Steven would do that to me here and there. He was just, you know, pretty that's brash and open and, but anyway, so, so yeah, so I don't know. So when I say Chris Everett and Stan Smith, these people don't know. I, I really mean it. I don't think they know what we know really? because they haven't had to fight like we've had to fight, right? Just to be good grinders. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Good, good, uh, good on us for taking the hard road and not being as good as them. Yeah. I mean, we always had to keep striving yeah. and keep learning and keep trying to be more like them. Uh, and I think when it comes oh, so naturally, you don't question it as much. And there's something also to be said, you know, I, I went from high performance coaching pros, college kids, elite juniors to being a club pro for a lot of years. And then coming back to the world of, of, uh, very, very good players. And that 26 years as a club pro, I saw so many successes and failures that it helps me, you know, even though. Um, it's different, but it has helped so much. And sometimes you need that. I remember uh, interviewing the great uh, strategist and, and analyst, uh, you know, talk about AI and statistics, Craig O'Shaughnessy. And he said, he woke that up in me. He, he said, look, mate, I was a good player. I was on the team at Baylor. I was, uh, you know, very high level junior too. And, um, and, you know, I don't know, top 50 in NCAAs. His first job uh, after stopping to play ITFs or satellites at the time is what we called them. Um, uh, he was made to coach beginners. And he's like, what the hell am I doing here? Like, what is this? Like, uh, you have no idea who I am. And then he said, three months later, he realized what a better coach he is at the high levels, thankful for the low levels. And, you and I have put in those hard yards and we've, you know, the, 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 what was the word you used is the, the strength or the reps or whatever word you used. I thought nailed it. What was that? Um, I'm um, not whatever sure. it was, it, it, it's the idea is we've, we've put in that kind of work and it makes you quite a bit better. Now uh, maybe Chrissy is going to be listened to, if it's somebody vying for the, you know, the difference between the first week and the second week of a slam, I see where that helps. 
but I'm with you. I, I would love to see them commentate with that knowledge of not necessarily being a teaching pro at a club for 25 years, but being, uh, you know, being experienced with the reps and seeing, Hey, what's going to help, you know, Joe Blow watching this or, uh, you know, Susie Housecoat watching this, who is, is really not getting the best stuff from maybe the teaching pro at home or not letting that teaching pro know that, Hey, I'm ready for the good stuff. I'm ready for beautiful strokes that aren't that different from what's working on TV. You know, I see it all the time. Like, okay, uh, let's teach super linear, ugly old strokes. And then one day we'll graduate into this, this, and this. And I, uh, the, the more I, I get better at this stuff, the more I'm like, you know, I don't like that. I like, let's do it right and beautifully and naturally. And all of a sudden, that 14-year-old who was a good mover, she becomes an even better mover and she's striking the freaking ball and she's spinning it. And it's not, uh, not just flat. She's getting it. Like that ball is looked like it's out, then it's in. And that's what wins tennis matches. That's what I love to see. And that's, uh, part four of my answer of why we love this game. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're right. And I, and I think the teaching beginners and teaching pros, I, I remember one of the last lessons I, I gave Sam query up at, uh, and Dick Van Patten's house up in Beverly Hills. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I, we would meet there because he came from Thousand Oaks. I came from uh, Del Mar and we meet in the middle. And uh, Dick was just a fanatic. He loved tennis. And so the whole family, Vinny and Nels, they all just loved the game and they were all good at it. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, basically, you know, on his backhand volley, I remember that last lesson, we were just working on lining it up. Well, shit, I'll tell that to a 2.0 woman. I mean, it, you know, it, it doesn't matter. Principles are principles. You don't just go, well, I'm going to get you off to a good st- a start so you can hit the ball. And later we'll talk about hips and, and spin. And no, 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 no. You teach them right from the beginning and then let them flourish. Let them live into this geometry instead of saying, well, you know, I'm just going to get you to touch the ball like a touching a dot with a mallet. And then later, you know, and, and it'll get you on the court to play with your friends. Well, you know, you're going to keep the same friends because you're not going to keep moving on. That's that's the problem. And, and so I'm I'm with you on that. And you're going to and and you're going to keep serving like this instead of beautifully, right? Same. You know, and I I, I was realizing I about when we were ripping on the women's serves. It may not be just the coaching. Um, it may be the because uh, you said to me something like you said, "Well, I've got some good players now, and I'm afraid you know you don't really want to touch their strokes because they're comfortable and this and that." I had an 11 year old. It was Stephen's sister, Karen Foreman. She had just won the national Little Mo. Remember Little Mo? Oh yes. Okay. Well, course, you're in Texas, of course. You, that, yeah. of course, you know Little yeah, Mo. So she had just won. Yeah. She won Little Mo back in whatever 1999 or 2000, whatever. She won the 10 and unders or 11 unders. And, um, and I was going to, you know, I was really working on her serve. She, and, you know, trying to give her a tighter coil and a bigger pop. Cause she's not a tall kid. Her brother's Steven six, five, and she was not a tall kid. She was more like five, three, five, four. And, um, no five, 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 six. But, um, she said to me as an 11 year old, she said, Jack, my serve's fine. It goes in and it's fine. Let's not mess with it. And this 11-year-old, so I know, so it's partly the players too, I, I would imagine it, that they just don't want to touch it because the ball goes the in risk. most of the time. Yeah. And, um, there, and there, so- there's a, there's a, yeah, there's a time of year I'll touch it. 
and there's a time of year when a tournament's coming up that we won't touch it. But sorry, you're you're about to say about uh, no, I'm the uh, same. Sometimes it's the player. Yeah, I'm the same. Uh, but you know, I don't think I always think there's no time like the present, especially if you think they could hurt themselves with that ugly serve. You know, and eventually their shoulder's going to give out like uh, Rafter's oh. shoulder. Even though he had a big serve, he did a couple of things, in my opinion, that weren't too correct. And so his shoulder blew out on him and they had a very short career. I mean, he, he could have gone another 10 years, really. Uh, yeah, a, a fit guy with with uh, a, a great serve despite the limitations, the, uh, right? you know, the lack of coil, the, the heavy up-down uh, not a lot of vines, like you said, the twisting vines. Exactly. Same way. You, I actually compare his serve to Hingis's. Hingis could have been the greatest of all time. I mean, she used to give the Williams sisters fits just playing them down the middle. I mean, she would just drive them nuts. But but her so serve smart. was such a her serve was such a detriment. Uh, kind of like Dementieva, oh. who could have been one of the greatest, but her serve was just so piss poor. It was just unbelievable, you know. Even Sharapova, as big as her serve, she would average 20 double faults in, in a tournament, you know, every match. It was incredible. Um, so yeah, it's awful. Yeah. We'll send them all to us, right? And we'll, we'll fix them. That's right. We'll help. We well, my friend, we I, I tell you what, I, AJ, I've really enjoyed our conversations today and in the last few weeks. Uh, it's a pleasure knowing you. I have a feeling we're going to be good friends for a long time now. And, I can uh, feel it. Yeah. Thank you, Jack. This has been awesome. Shout out to uh, the, the man who introduced us uh, just on the phone. So uh, thank you, Bill, uh, Brainsport. Um, so thankful because we've become, uh, you know, good friends already just in the past month or two. Yep, it's true. And we have a lot of common and, and who knows, maybe we'll get on court one of these days together and really have some interesting times. I would love that so much. Yeah, for sure. Well, certainly, if you ever get up here for a vacation in the mountains, Colorado, you look me up and uh, you're in Dallas, correct? That's right. In the city. Yeah, I'll do the same. And let's try to make a point of it here in the next year or so. No question about it, Jack. Big thanks for today. This is really fun. And we get to do something on uh, Monday as well and Wednesday as well. We're doing the real spin, baby. It's going to be fun. Yeah, but let your hair down you. that night. I want you to let loose that night. I will. I will. Tonight I want some of those. More, I want some uh, of those impressions. Okay. And you know, you can't bomb because you got the other three of us or four of us there. So it's impossible. We'll have some fun. It'll, it'll, yeah, it'll be great. All right. Hey, thank you, my friend. Looking forward to it. Thanks, buddy. I'll see you, en see you Monday. Enjoy the rest of AO. I will.